And Jesus, we thank you for the power that we share in you. It's awesome that you come into our lives and change us. It's awesome that we share that together with others here at Crosspoint and that we get to tell others about it too. And we're blessed and we just pray uh, your blessings on the rest of our time together in Jesus' name, amen. So Pastor Bruce is uh, down on the southern end of Mexico somewhere. I got an email from him today and he said he's seeing parts of Mexico he's never seen before. I'm not sure he was encouraged because I don't think they have air conditioning there. And it's uh, 91 degrees with 88% humidity and 104 degree heat index uh, was the predicted. We looked on like Tuesday together at what he was confronting down there. But he's doing a good thing. He and Sharice are down there with a, a minister from their church in Mexico that went to start a work down in the jungles in Mexico. And I think he's going to come back astounded and uh, really have some cool stories to tell us. Uh, so that'll be good. My name's Jim. I'm the executive pastor here and groups pastor and do a few different things. And I get to step in for him when he's gone from time to time. And I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this morning. I wanted to share a miracle that I witnessed on Friday with uh, some of our church members. Uh, I don't know exactly how long ago it was. It was uh, late April, early May. I showed up to a hospital visit uh, with some friends of ours. Uh, Bob Stetler was in ICU and his wife was there with him. And the moment I walked in the door that day, the doctor was talking to Natalie about having to make the decision of whether or not to keep Bob on life support. As you can imagine, that was a hard choice. And she made the choice to keep him on because the doctor said there was a chance. And her conviction was if there was even a chance. Well, Bob came home Friday. Uh, I got to bring him home and... Uh, you know, he needed a ride, and Natalie doesn't drive, so I got to pick him up, and man, it was just awesome seeing him. I saw him on Monday or Tuesday last week and told him, for the next four days, you're going to be like a six-year-old before Christmas. He was so excited, and then when he got home, man, it was just great. So, and I heard, I got a report yesterday that he made eggs in the morning, so he's feeling a lot better, so that's super cool. And so... Uh, Today we're going to look at Romans 12, uh, if you want to turn there, we're in verses 1 and 2, and I got good news and bad news. There's, the good news is no service backs up to this one. The bad news is I got about three sermons worth of a message here, so. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, it is... It, I, I do think I could have made it into three sermons, but I, I think you will appreciate how we've uh, tied it together in one, and um, I, I've enjoyed studying it, that's for sure. I, I, I think, you know, we say this from time to time, it shouldn't surprise you that when a pastor studies for a sermon, it's likely that he's the most changed in the process and the most informed, and certainly this one has been that for me and very helpful. Um, so on uh, Thursday, I got to have lunch with Sean Garrity, and we went to Pieology. We met over there, and um, I don't know if you've been there. Do you guys like that make-your-own-pie places? That uh, yeah, yeah, they're fun. I like Mod better than Pieology, but Pieology is really good. And uh, uh, we took the time to look at some of their wall art, and it was a bunch of quotes, and uh, they were they, they were great. And I like quotes and sayings. I have a few of my own that I own. Uh, you know, and, and go to all the time with people. 
Uh, here's some of the ones uh, that I noticed up there that I've maybe heard before, but I like them. You miss 100% of the shots you do not take. Who said that? Wayne Gretzky. If you said Jordan, I think it's been attributed to him too, but it was Gretzky who originated that. Um, so that's a good one. Proud of you for knowing that because hockey's the best professional sport. So if you don't, another one you might have heard before is if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And then one that made me giggle was by Buddy Hackett, who's a old-time comedian who was super funny. And he said, as a child, my family's menu consisted of two items, take it or leave it. <laughs> then we noticed in this, you know, this wallpaper of quotes, a verse. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 was on there, and it said, it, which says, uh, now these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And they quoted it right there. And then a little later, I went into the restroom, and it was totally printed on the whole entire wall, the right side wall of the hallway on the way to the restroom, and it's quite impressed with that too. There was a proverb up there and everything. So everybody has a favorite saying or quote or a few of them or whatever, and I use them all the time in various settings. But if you've been a believer very long, you probably have a favorite verse or two. Maybe you have a list. But you know, the ones that change your life, the ones somebody helped you understand and you, you appreciated not only understanding it, but that it changed you. And so you memorized it and, and it still informs your life today and maybe you use it to help others. And Romans 12, one and two are, is definitely that for me. Since I was in high school, uh, that verse has been just a big encouragement. I know it in the King James where it says, I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I like it in the King James for a couple reasons, um, and we won't go too deep into those, but one of them uh, we'll, we'll definitely pick on a little bit later. And so when we come here, here's what I find, is that Paul is calling us to a certain disposition of life. He's calling us to a perspective that all Christians should have. He's talking to a crowd that he wants to, that he loves and he wants to lead, and he's saying them, uh, he's telling them that believers need to live a lifestyle of worship. That worship isn't an event, it's not 20 minutes of singing in church service, it's your life. It's everything you do. We are called to worship God 24-7 with our lives, every layer, every fiber of our being. An event is a thing that happens. A lifestyle is the way in which you live. Every fiber of your life, every scope of time should be dedicated to pleasing God as a living sacrifice. We're called to have that lifestyle of worship in our thoughts our attitudes, our beliefs, our actions. The parts of you that make you you are supposed to, according to Paul, supposed to be worshiped to God. They are to pay worth to God. They are to glorify him. And so I want to talk about with you today the why, what, and how of having a lifestyle of worship. Why is important. Tomoko and I learned when we were taking a parenting class way back with our first of five boys that 
to instruct or, or command a child to ask them to do something that, is, uh, that you want them to do as a, as a parent is a great thing to do. It's even greater and affirming and honoring to them if you include the why. And it's just helpful. And so the why in leading anybody is important. And Paul gives us uh, some reasons why here. First of all, it's important to Paul. In the versions of the Bible, I looked up several to just try and help my understanding and see how it compared to the King James. At the beginning there where it says beseech, raise your hand if you use the word outside of reading your Bible, beseech in common language. I don't use it. So they changed it to try and update it so we can understand it. And they said appeal, urge, encourage. And one version, which is exactly what beseech means, said beg. And you beg the people you love and lead when you have something that's really important to you, you want to communicate. But it's not only because it's important to you, it's because you want it important to them. If you're a parent, it's academics, right? You've begged your kids, please do your homework, do it on time, and on and on. And we've all been there if we've, if, if we've parented it at all. It could be somebody you know has uh, a fitness issue and they need to get healthy. And you love them and you care for them. And maybe the doctor has proclaimed that if you don't get this right, you're not going to have a very uh, enjoyable or long life. And so you beg them. In my house, one of the things I've begged my kids to do is get outside. You know, it's, there's so many opportunities to do cool things inside that, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to go outside. But I have literally stood in front of them and said, what are you doing? We live in Huntington Beach, California. It's gorgeous outside. The rest of the world envies us. Go outside. Would you please? And so it's important to me, and I'm begging because I want it to be important to them. Paul wants those he loves and lead to live lifestyles of worship. So he's begging them. I want you to think, as we move into the next point, about the biggest miracle you need. What's the biggest thing in your life that if there could be an intervention from God and it would change? What is that thing? Maybe it's health issue, a financial issue, a relational conflict that you'd like healed. I don't know. But in your heart and in your mind, what's the biggest miracle you would need today? for you. You got it? Then I want you to think about what if by some, some way, some, some, I don't know how exactly today, you receive that miracle? What would your response be? Would it be gratitude? Like the 10 lepers came to Jesus, wanted to be healed. They all got healed, but only one came back. And we look at him and we think, ah, that, you should have done that. That's awesome. And we look at the other nine and we think, whoa, what's going on there? We like the one. What about the blind man who was healed? He was committed, uh, he was healed and then he committed himself. He told Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. He wanted to commit his life right there because of that miracle. Why should you live your life like a living sacrifice to God? Paul here says it's because of God's mercies. You got that miracle you're thinking of, and it's important, and I don't want to discount it in the least bit, but here's the truth. The biggest miracle you have ever experienced or will ever experience is your salvation. There's nothing bigger. Nothing comes close. 
If you had a list of miracles and there was 50 of them that you need today, all 50 wouldn't add up to that one. And here's how I know that. Because to heal the lepers, to heal a blind man, to raise the dead required Jesus to touch somebody or speak a word, and that's all. But for you to be saved, for your sins to be forgiven, for you to have a permanent home in heaven, Jesus had to die. The cost of that gift, the cost of that miracle are supreme. There is no greater price to be paid, and Jesus paid it for you. He paid it for me. And Paul says, in view of God's mercies, be a living sacrifice. Live a life of worship to God, a lifestyle. And number three, in view of those mercies, it's your reasonable, rational service. He died so you could live. It's reasonable and rational to expect that you would devote your life to him. That's not hard. Can you think of a time when anybody ever sacrificed mightily for your benefit? Parent, friend, coworker, whoever, however. When my wife Tomoko was in the hospital for days and days back in 2012, some friends of ours found out that she wouldn't have minded the house to be painted, and they painted the downstairs. Cool blessing, right? And routinely, I'm grateful for that. I'll look around at how nice the house looks and be grateful for my friends who did that. And I feel postured that if they ever called me to help paint their house or move or do something for them, I would do it. It wouldn't be hard. It would be reasonable and rational to expect that, yes, I will help you. In the same way, Jesus gave you the biggest miracle that could possibly given, be given his life, and it's reasonable that you would give him yours, that you would devote yourself, that you would devote every fiber of your being from head to toe and every minute of your day for the rest of your lives to loving and serving him as a living sacrifice. That's reasonable, that's rational, and it's what Paul is calling us to do it's super important to him. So what are you going to do? That's why you're going to do what I just said. Number one, you're going to present yourself a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Here's what it means in my opinion. Jew Jewish sacrifices were, ceremony were ceremonies where animals were killed and burnt as a sacrifice, as a form of worship to God. It was pleasing to God. He determined that it would be so. Something had to die and it was worship. We're called to worship while we're living. Our lives, the part of us, our every thought, every part of who we are, everything we do is to be pleasing and acceptable to God. And when we live to please God, that is a lifestyle of worship. And it's not supposed to be eventful. Your Christian life is not eventful. You're not only a living sacrifice when you're around other Christians. And then you can go somewhere else and not be Christian compartmentalizing your faith. You have a certain amount of time that you're awake and able to live for God. That whole day, every day, forever, is to be devoted to pleasing him, to being a living sacrifice. You present yourself. It's something you do. It's conscious, it's willful, and you have to do that in order to have a lifestyle of worship. And then number two, you're not going to be conformed to this world. 
And that's a hard one. I think sometimes people hear that and they think, well, I better stop listening to Iron Maiden and participating in devil worship music or whatever and skulls and pentagrams and all that and all the kind of big things. It's not just that. Of course it's that. But we need to reject the anti-God or the counter to God's will, philosophies, attitudes, and actions of the world. Those things that are counter to his attitudes, philosophies, and actions. God thinks a certain way. And to the extent that outside forces think differently, we are to reject those. We aren't to conform to those. We are not to cooperate with those. We want to conform to Christ's character. It's interesting to me that just a few chapters back, Paul declares that the call of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That doesn't mean dress like Christ and, and grow a beard. That means have his character. And so when those parts of our nature that are contrary to God's will arise, we have a decision to make and we have these choices to make all day long. And when we live to please ourselves instead of God, those moments are not worshipful. For instance, someone cuts you off on the road. Do you offer an evil stare or loving patience? Someone at work criticizes your work. Do you retaliate or show kindness? An authority figure treats you unfairly. Do you hold a grudge or strive to improve? And I just think, like, and, and, and I've, I'm learning this, and I'm, I'm, I'm just really trying to figure out this idea that I think is so true and so life-changing if I can get a hold of it and if you can get a hold of it. And that is this. We're fighting against sinfulness, not sins. I mean, I want to look at my face sometime and think, okay, those really big things that I've compromised on, I need to get rid of those. But what about the little things? It's, it's all of it. If one to ten were a scale for sinfulness and how bad a sin could be and if we're comfortable with one through three, are we really worshiping God? And so I want to fight sinfulness, not just sins, because what I know is I'm not sinful because I sin. I sin because I'm sinful. I need to get rid of sinfulness. And the world is super comfortable with sinfulness. And so we're told not to be conformed to it. Number three, instead, we're, we're told to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You know, since we are so very human and frail and sinful, we have some changing to do in order to be conformed to the image of Christ, in order to live a lifestyle of worship. We've got to change, and he's saying be changed. To live beyond an event-centered faith into a lifestyle of, of worship, we've got to be changed. To own and express Christ-like character as part of who we are and not something we manufacture Building Christ into our lives and changing our historic selves into our potential selves in Jesus Christ. But how? How in the world do you do that? Well, he gives us some ideas here that we can think about. Here's what I see. Number one, to live a lifestyle of worship, you must sacrifice yourself. Not self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is... I have something you want or need and I give it to you sacrificially. No, sacrifice yourself, the part of you that makes you 
you. You have to trade your way, your understanding, your agenda, your hurts, your hangups, your hurt, uh, your habits for a lifestyle that pleases God. And I'm going to tell you something, it won't always make sense. When the guy cuts you off and he gave you the evil glare as he cut you off, your human understanding is go around him, glare back, and cut him off. That's human. And I'll tell you, it's understandable. I would even say it's normal, but it's counter to worship. It's not being a living sacrifice. So I have to give up how I understand how the world works, align myself with how God says it works, and to do that takes faith that he knows better than I do, that following through on what he tells me is beneficial, even though it doesn't feel that way. To live that lifestyle of worship, you're going to have to sacrifice yourself in every single context of life that you live. Your alone life, your family life, your friend life, your work life, your recreation life. You're going to have to respond to it in faith. You're going to have to give up yourself. Number two, to grow a lifestyle into a lifestyle of worship, you must not only sacrifice yourself, but you're going to have to sacrifice your time. Nobody's answered me on this yet. To the contrary, I'm pretty sure anything that grows requires time. For anything to grow, for anything to change, it's going to require time. And it's certainly going to be required to invest time if you want to live a lifestyle of worship. You need to be transformed that much. I need to be transformed that much. We need to stick with the basics, and it will take your time. The Bible He said, by the renewing of your mind is how you're going to be transformed. You renew your mind first and foremost in God's word. How else are we going to align with what God thinks if we don't know what he thinks? How do we learn what he thinks? We learn it in his word. We have to be in there every day. It's your spiritual nourishment, and it takes time. And I want to encourage you in this. We don't go to the Bible just to be informed. There's a lot of great things to know in the Bible, but not all of them change your life. You go to the Bible to be transformed to be confronted with the parts of your life that aren't yet lining up with the character of Christ, that aren't necessarily paying worth to God, they're not worshipful, and you see in the Bible this needs to change and you work to change it with the help of God. And we need to be in the Bible. We don't think twice about missing food. Everybody in the room probably eats at least three times a day, and some of us it's four, five, six, 20 You know, if you're a snacker, I like snacks. And we don't think twice about it. I like TV, too. I watch TV every day. It's rare that I don't watch TV. But TV can't ever be more important to my day than the Word of God is. Being in the Word takes time. It takes time to be in prayer. It's your spiritual communication, and it takes time. The Bible's going to come at you and say, be patient, be loving, be kind, and you're not going to feel like it. Ever been there? I've been there a lot. Ever been there? You know what you do? God, I don't feel patient. I know you want me to be patient. I'm weak. I'm foolish. Help me be what you want me to be. Oswald Chambers said, prayer is not meant to develop us naturally. It is meant to give the life of the Son of God in us. 
We need to be in prayer. It's your spiritual communication, and it takes time. And then what about church? I, it's, it's curious to me, and I, don't, I, I can think of all the explanations and maybe even other things for why people find it so easy to miss church. I think it's misguided. And I think we really need to get to the place in Christianity in general where we understand how vitally important it is to be connected at church. Jesus said it was important. The apostles said it was important. Here's why I think it's important. It's your spiritual insulation from enemy territory. We're out there every single day surrounded by people who are antagonists in in a culture that's antagonistic. This is where you come to get renewed and inspired and encouraged by, I don't know, I hope you feel it. You come in, there's a vibe at church that's just so loving and kind and fun and praiseworthy. It's awesome and we need to be here. And there's a whole lot of other reasons I could talk about, but to encourage and strengthen your faith, to take the time to grow your faith, you have to be in church. One of the reasons we added Saturday night service is to take away excuses for missing church on Sunday morning because people have priorities that they want to be involved with on Sunday. And they might take them out of church. Okay, well, if that's you, be here on Saturday. The world is enemy territory. This is like an American consulate in a foreign land. Man, it's just peace. To live a lifestyle of worship, you're going to need to sacrifice yourself, your time, and your effort. You're going to have to be emotionally and physically invested in living a lifestyle of worship. Now, you get to live it. You don't have to give up your life like Christ did. He did that for you. But here's what you need to know. Time alone will not do it. If you want to restore your 1971 awesome Corvette Stingray, cool looking car, but you got one and it's a mess, you can park it in your garage and have every tool known to man in there, but if you don't go put yourself into the effort, it will just stay broken down. It takes energy and effort to display a lifestyle of worship, and you've got to sacrifice yourself, your time, and your effort. You have to do it. You need to be invested. You can't wish your way into a lifestyle of worship. You can't drift your way into a lifestyle of worship. You have to move. It's like a car, pushing it with no motor, very hard. Car moves and steers and does what it should do when it's running and moving, it does it pretty easily. Same in your faith. God can move a moving object much more easily than a a static one. To display that lifestyle of worship, man, when it comes into conflict with what God wants, you gotta go with God. It's going to take time and effort. And here's something I'm really grateful for. God's patient with you. You're in a process, and he knows that. He's patient with you. Philippians 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. It doesn't offer a timeline. I think completion is in heaven. We're constantly in process. God's working on us. He's not surprised by our inability to be perfect. And he's here to help. But we got to move. We got to be determined 
and dedicated to live that lifestyle of worship. And is it worth it? I don't know if you've thought about this. I guarantee you felt this. From the day you got saved, somebody, a few different somebodies, have been saying, prove it. You want to follow God? Prove it. You say you're giving up your old life? Prove it. You say you're giving up sinfulness? Prove it. You say you want to be involved volunteering in ministry? Prove it. You're going to be a faithful church attender? Prove it. And it reminds me of this movie. Cool Hand Luke, one of my favorite movies of all time. Probably how we inspired the name of our firstborn, maybe. Some people would say Star Wars. I'll take him instead of Skywalker, but personally. Because I, I really have I enjoyed that movie for a long time. And here's this scene. It's an awesome scene. You can look it up on YouTube. It's really cool. There, it takes place in a prison camp. Uh, they're day workers. They build roads, and they work hard, and they are bored as all get out in this prison that just have their rooms, just, just beds and some tables and chairs. Luke's over on one end of the room in his bed just laying there pondering life. The other guys are doing whatever they're doing. And he pipes up laying there and he says, I can eat 50 eggs. And as soon as he makes that declaration, almost instantly, a a character by the name of Dragline says, nobody can eat 50 eggs. And then almost everybody starts chiming in. It's a room full of dudes. Nobody can eat 50 eggs. A couple guys start agreeing. Dragline changes his mind. He's like, he can eat 50 eggs. If he says he can eat 50 eggs, he can eat 50 eggs. What are they saying? They're saying, prove it. And when you get saved, Satan's coming into your life, and he's saying, really, you want to follow God? You think this is what you want? Or whenever you make a new commitment, you're not up to that. Or whenever you sin, a sin that you shouldn't have done and you've known it your whole life and you did it anyway and he's accusing you and saying you're not worthy to worship God, he's saying prove it. And you got people around you, maybe they're in your family, maybe they're in your friend group, maybe they're at work, they know you're a Christian and they may never verbalize it, they might not even think it, but self-consciously or subconsciously, they are thinking to themselves, that dude's a Christian, prove it. And the world is screaming, prove it to us. You know who else is telling you to prove it? You yourself. You wonder, after whatever's gone on in your day, sometimes good, sometimes bad, if you're proving it. And what it says at the end of verse two is that that Paul wants us to live lives as sacrificial lifestyle, so that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, so that our lives would prove the gospel. The first thing that's the will of God for any unbeliever is that they'd be saved. Your life is being lived and it's proving the gospel when you live it acceptable to God, when you live a lifestyle of worship. You're proving it to yourself. Man, I'm with God, God's with me. You're proving it to the devil, man. That guy is destroyed when you live a lifestyle of worship. But he keeps coming at you. And then what I think is super cool is that corporately as a church, when we come together as people dedicated to living lifestyles of worship, 
this place becomes a lighthouse that cannot be ignored. Where people who are drowning in sin, who are destined for an eternity in hell, with no hope in this world, look at us and go, I want that. What's the difference? And they see us and they go, it's Jesus. What an awesome thing to be able to share in, to be called in, to have that verse told to us. With, we don't think we have the potential, but God does, and he puts that in there for us. Live a lifestyle of worship. Is it big? Yes. Is it God-sized? Yes. Can you do it? Yes. If you'll sacrifice yourself, your time, and your effort to do exactly what the Bible's calling you to do. So I wanna invite you to, to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just ponder with me for a second. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ yet, and you hear about the biggest miracle any person could get, and you know you don't have it. Well, Jesus said it's a free gift for you. You can have it today by faith. And all you have to do to receive it is to call out to God and say, save me. You can pray with me right now, a prayer that would go like this. Just tell God in your own heart, say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. Please forgive me for my sins. And come into my life now. Be my savior and be my Lord. And if you know Jesus Christ today, maybe you've fallen short of a lifestyle of worship. You're comfortable and happy with some events, but you need to cross a line into a determination to live a lifestyle that honors God 24-7. And you maybe feel weak or confused or foolish. And you would just tell God today, God, I, I want to follow you with my whole heart. And I need your help to do it. And Jesus, it's just interesting to me and fascinating that it's true, that we, we can't do anything good without you. We just can't. We're so human. We're so broken. And right smack dab in the middle of who we are in that condition, you come in, you love us, you empower us, and you desire us to be difference makers for your kingdom. Thank you. So help us. Help us be who you call us to be. Help us to do what you call us to do. Help us to live lifestyles of worship that prove that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And we thank you that if we do that, if when we do that corporately, awesome, amazing things happen. And we just, we want to see people's lives change for eternity at this church, in this community, and throughout all the ministries we participate in around the world. Pastor Bruce is participating in one at the southern end of Mexico, and we pray your blessings into his life as he does so, and Sharice as well. We thank you that we not only can serve and pray, but that we can give 
and make that difference around the world. And so we invite you to bless this offering and do great things with what is given. In Jesus' name, amen.